welcome. My name is Gina Timberman, and you are listening to Timber People, a podcast about people who, like timber, are strong, build and create, who gather us together like fuel that feeds fire. People who support structures of our community that uplift and protect. It is a real honor, just such a joy to welcome my longtime friend, Chuck Schroeder. I'm also happy to meet and to welcome Eric Grant. Thank you so much for you both um, being here. I said a little earlier, you know, I welcome you to Timber People, a podcast about people that are creating and really um, developing like timber structures that uplift, protect, that share, that build and create. And this is the right um, conversation for that. Um, I thank you for being here, but I, I'm really like, uh, gosh, thank you for just welcoming me to your conversation <laughs> as well. Um, I'm just been, I've been so excited. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, Gina, it's, uh, this is Chuck. And uh, it's uh, it, it's just been such an honor to be able to come and join you here. You and I have a, a long friendship, long collaboration, going back to uh, creating the Braided Paths uh, art show at the Oklahoma City Arts Festival years ago, as well as doing other things together that we always hoped would make the world a better, more humane place. And uh, including, I, of course, I always remember the ground blessing day yes. that we started at the Cowboy Museum and then ended up on site uh, during your work with the First Americans Museum, which is just an achievement of a lifetime. Thank you and, so much. Uh, so I'll just, I'll never forget that. Thank you. You know, um, I just really want to acknowledge the, um, you know, how valuable it's been to learn from you. And even from my early days of getting into the museum, you know, work of just learning from you in your position as CEO and the executive director of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum and just the support that you've always provided to me personally and professionally and the friendship and then going to see you in Nebraska. and yeah. It's just been such a, uh, just a, a joy to see the uh, journey that you've been on and um, to see how your artwork has evolved. And I'm excited to talk about that. And Eric, I really, you know, learning about the book, it's a really special gift to write about someone, um, to learn about someone's writing, about someone they knew, knew closely or know closely. And um, that is, a, you're serving as a witness for important things to learn about people and their character and the impact that they have on the world around us. And I'm really excited to learn more about the book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate both of you and the opportunity to be here today. I've, I've known Chuck for probably th going on 30 years. Yeah, admired. I was trying to count back. I, that's that's pretty much on track. Yeah, it'd be, I think it was maybe 94. So we're coming in on it. But uh, been a great admirer of, of Chuck for since the day I met him. And uh, always uh, loved his appreciation for language and his mastery of language and being able to just get up and off the cuff speak to people. And, and uh, um, I was never really gifted that way. Um, and I've, I've kind of watched him try to emulate the things that he does. But it's been really interesting for me the last few years, to, well, not the last few, the last decade to watch Chuck moved from his profession of being a leader and a, and, a, and a CEO of a lot of big organizations and companies into becoming a much more personal journey in a way, make that, that evolution in becoming a, an artist and a successful artist, because that is not an easy, easy 
task to take on with with your life's journey, as you know. So I think one of the one of the really fun parts of this interaction today with the three of us is that um, uh, it's a kaleidoscope when you look at our varied backgrounds. But uh, art uh, in each of our lives has brought us around this table today. And it's such a connector of people. And I mean, and Gina, you have been a connector as long as I've known you across every conceivable line, culturally and otherwise. And But here we are today uh, to talk about art and the way that it has, you know, for millennia, uh, given people an opportunity to cross those lines and and come to understand each other better and in a in a beautiful way that reaches way down into that part of us uh, where language uh, can't even communicate. It's it's uh, a language of the spirit. So. Absolutely, and thank you so much. You know, timber um, is a fuel that you know you build a fire. People come to it for warmth to gather. And um, that's what this is really about. And I appreciate you for being a, a people connector. Uh, you know, that those relationships are important. And I've met um, many people because of you. And I, I deeply value that. Thank you. <laughs> well, listen, this is going to be kind of fun. Uh, to we're, we're here to talk about uh, Eric's recently released book, uh, Hollis Williford, The Crossing at the River, which is, is really a, a remarkable accomplishment. Well, listen, uh, Eric, it's easy to say, well, okay, so you're an author and of course you have your own communication company. You've been in the communication business for uh, your whole career and and done that successfully. But um, this book is really a very different chapter in that life of communication. So to begin with, you never describe yourself as an artist, but I have I have watched your photography now over decades. You you have some extraordinary artistic skills in uh, composition, color, and and the strength of emotion even in the work that you do. Uh, not counting shooting pictures of cows and that kind of stuff, but <laughs> talk a little bit about where that came from. And because it, to me, is really at the heart of this book. Uh, it, yes, it's Hollis's art, but you have presented it in a way that is really, I think, extraordinary. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Chuck. I, uh, I've always been a little um, hesitant to consider what I do as, as a photographer or as a writer as art. And it's partly because I always wanted to stay hungry. And never wanted to have a sense of arrival. And so, as you know, I have shot tens of thousands of photos in some of the most beautiful places on the planet. You got me up at 4.30 in the morning to shoot one of those. Now, believe me, yeah, I know. Yeah, this isn't just hanging out with your brownie, you know. Yeah. And they were uh, they were good photos. They were good photos. Uh, but other than a few snapshots I've taken of family and a few other things uh, with my iPhone, I... I don't have anything hanging on my wall that I've ever shot. And it's it's a fear of saying I've made it, you know? And I, I, I at some point, maybe my boys or maybe my grandkids will want to hang up some pictures that I took. But for me, it's like I just want to stay hungry and I never want to feel like I got there. Um, but my background... Um, 
I was an English major in college. I, you know, I studied some of the greatest literary works in history. I have a sense for plot and story construction and those kinds of things. And I'm able to see those things, I think, in some ways in photography and also in my writing that maybe other people who don't have that background do. But I think even farther back than that, um, you know, one of the things I think that society has lost in general is, is the art of the conversation. And I remember sitting in my grandparents' living room on the ranch and listening to my grandpa tell stories. And we weren't looking at our iPhones or, you know, interrupting. We were listening to how he would build those, those, those plots and those themes into his, his stories. And that's always stayed with me. And uh, so I had, you know, a very beginning, you know, a great background in, in understanding how stories are put together and, and what makes a good story and what doesn't. Well, you, that obviously is a gift. And uh, I mean, I was reminded as we were having dinner and a drink or two last night, um, your capacity as a storyteller and to draw that out of others uh, is, it, it's, a, it's a fun element of life. I, I, as you and I shared a little earlier today, life moves so fast now that we too rarely sit down together as friends and, and just to tell stories. Um, and it, but it so enriches the life of everybody within earshot, even folks in the next booth, I think. But um, anyway, yeah, you really have that capacity. Yeah, and, and along those lines, one of the mantras that at my company has been is particularly in developing young people to become professional videographers or photographers or writers is in a conversation, don't finish each other's sentences. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge temptation um, today to rush to the end of the thought. And 50% of the time when you're talking to someone that they're finishing your sentences, they're wrong. They don't, they don't give it, they don't have the patience to, to let it play out and actually let that, that situation resolve. So we work on that a lot. In fact, there's probably a week, not a week that doesn't go by that I don't mention it in a meeting or, you know, it's, it's really important. Listening is really important. Gina, I'm a, I have to interject this because as Eric talks, it just reminds me of my early interactions with you. And one of the things that that just opened my heart to you is that you do listen to the end of the statement. And I, I, I have never seen you talk over someone else or fail to be listening. And it's, um, and anyway, when I see you in this role now, and this again, taking your whole connecting mission to this level, uh, it just strikes me that that's, that's, in Gina's heart. That's just how you roll. That's Thank so you. That's a gift for me to hear you say that. Thank you. You know, I really appreciate um, your comment about the construction of the story, because to end the sentence or to end the story would assume that everything is linear, that it ends. So there are so many cultural experiences and stories that are shared that draw upon things that happened many, many years ago. And, and, you know, that is um, really important is, is there really the, there is a, like a process for a construction of one's own story, how they tell it. And sometimes it's not always linear and it's, um, it's really, it can be very, um, I don't know, interesting and unsuspecting. 
Yeah, and we t- uh, to swing this back to the book a little bit, I, I remember um, when I wrote this thing, I actually wrote it in Oklahoma City. Um, took me 28 years to get to it, but I finally sat down, escaped to Oklahoma City to, to write it. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to write this A to Z. Um, and so I wrote a, a short biography that's in the front part of the book that basically allowed me to get off the hook and telling the story in a linear fashion. I'm like, I'm going to sell, I'm going to tell the story the way I want to tell the story. And I, and I honestly don't really care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to do it my way. Well, it's, it's beautifully done. And I, I've, no, as Gina was talking, I thought, my gosh, this is, this is just describing the book. So listen, uh, Hollis Williford has been gone for a while. Extraordinary guy. And um, your intersection with Hollis's life uh, is worth a movie in itself. It's fascinating. But let's let's start back to front a little bit. Talk about Hollis and why people should be interested in him and this story. Well, Hollis Williford was an artist uh, uh, who, who, who was born in Texas, um, wound up in Colorado for a number of reasons, but we can go into that in a little bit. But he died in 2007. Um, I think it's interesting he died the same year that the iPhone came out. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really kind of a point of demarcation in history. I, and I'm not sure he'd be happy to be living today with the loss of freedom and, and the intrusion of big tech and things into our lives as a result of technology. I, I just don't think he'd be comfortable with it. But uh, there, are, there are a couple things that I think Hollis did. One was um, he came from nowhere. Um, he had a very poor background. His father abandoned him when he was young. Um, but still he had this, this hunger, you know, and I think it's really, I remember when I first started thinking about writing this thing, I asked, uh, uh, Crystal Albers who works, works for Grant Company, you know, she, or she asked me, well, what's the most important thing that he wants people to know? And I said, I think it's that couple things. One is that he wants people to know that he didn't waste a life, that every every moment of your life can set the tone for the rest of your life, you know, whatever, all those little things. And and another theme was that he wanted to be an inspiration to, quote, any barefooted kid that walked into a museum that saw his work and wanted to be inspired by it. And and he was always looking out for that that kid. And, And I happened to be one of those people that came into his life and I think as I've as the book has come out and I've gotten to meet more people um, that knew him, they all kind of say the same, had the same parallel experience. This guy took time with me. He took time with me when I was at that point in my life where I thought oh, I'll go be an auto mechanic or I might be an artist. And and Hollis banked him back into being an artist. Not that there's anything wrong with being an auto mechanic, but right, right, the world right. needs more of those. But but um, but he had a uh, an incredible. Um, effect on other people. You would go up to a studio in Loveland, Colorado and be just absolutely mesmerized by his studio. It was just, it just, it was just an energized place. Um, but, uh, but he had a profound impact on me and hundreds of people that he, and he steered into living a creative, productive life. But I think the big one for him really was don't waste it. This is it. This is all you got. You know, well, I think it's important for people uh, to know who are familiar with the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum that that Hollis uh, won the 
Did he win it twice? Twice, yeah. Won the uh, Preto West Purchase Award, which is the highest uh, honor at the annual Preto West uh, uh, Art Invitational show and sale. Um, and you talk about touching people's lives. Uh, one of those winners was Welcome Sundown, which anybody who's been to the Cowboy Museum knows it's the, it's the major sculpture out in front of that museum that visitors from uh, all over the world uh, have seen, have touched, uh, and have felt the power of that uh, of that great sculpture. Mm-hmm. And of course, his his the snake priest, the other piece that won the Prix de West, I, which is a, of course a much smaller piece, uh, is just one of the most electrifying uh, works that I, during the time I was at the Cowboy Museum, I've, I've revisited it many times. Uh, it's very, very powerful. So he was, he was at the height of his power. He was arguably one of the, one of the great Western artists in the world. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. And, and it, the amazing thing to me on another level of just looking at his artwork, he, he was one of these guys that could do anything. Um, he was a sculptor one day. And if he got tired with that, he'd go, he'd go draw for a week or two or he'd paint or he'd etch, but he was constantly creating. And I think, in some ways, rather than some people who just paint, they get uh, painter's block or writer's block. I think they kind of get locked up. Hollis was able to shift gears and, and to create in other areas. And and honestly, I, uh, the book has one of his uh, better known paintings on the cover or on the dust jacket. And I personally, um, I don't want to say didn't like his paintings, but his sculpture eclipses his paintings because it's so, you know, as you say, electrifying. But his paintings are very peaceful places. And, uh, um, and and until we tried to print this book, I didn't have a full appreciation for what he was trying to do with color and composition. Because mm-hmm. when you go into a printing press and you're trying to match that painting, it's almost an impossibility because of the complexity, complexity of the colors he was dealing with. He was a very, very smart guy. And uh, his paintings are beautiful. Um, and I have probably more of an appreciation for his painting than his other work now than as a result of, of creating a book. Okay. So thinking about his work, I, I, I love this story. And you, you talk about this book taking 30 years to write. Yeah. I want you to begin with your first interaction with this obscure etching you find in a little gallery in Denver, mm-hmm. and you'd never heard of Hollis Williford hardly, and uh, tell that story and how that led to your engagement and his invitation to you. Yeah, it was one of those uh, sunsplash, late September day, deep blue sky color starting to appear in the trees. I just remember that. And my wife and I had just bought a, uh, a house in northwest Denver, had nothing uh, to hang on the walls, uh, nothing really to furnish the house with. And uh, so we went antiquing. And stepped into this little antique store, and there behind the cash register was this little etching of a of a of a wagon train called Teams and Dreams, and it kind of stuck with me. And I and I I don't remember if I went home and went back, but I bought it. It was about two hundred bucks, I think, and we took it home, uh, put it right in the heart of the house where all the points of convergence are. You know, you have to go to the bathroom, you got to go buy it, go to the bedroom, you got to go buy it, go to the living room. You know, did it was one of those and. I just loved it. Um, and and uh, because of my training in plot and story construction, um, I could tell immediately that whoever created it had a sense of 
I mean, it's not just a composition. It's not just drawing. It's also placing your subject on the continuum line of the plot to where it's the most interesting. Most artists, or a lot of artists, um, who create dull work, or artists who create dull work, or uninteresting work, it might be beautifully compositionally or color-wise, place the plot, the point of the plot, after the climax. Hollis had a gift of placing his, his work at the moment right before the climax, so that you didn't know which direction the plot was going to go, you know, the, it was the infinite possibilities at that moment. And what I saw in the etching was a couple of um, um, covered wagons with oxen, and the front team had stopped, and the, the oxen had turned their head just slightly to the right. Like, what have they seen, you know? Mona Lisa is the, you know, the, 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 right. the stereotypical example of not knowing what that plot, where she's going to land with it. Anyway, so I knew he was good. And it's a very basic etching. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very basic composition. And, and I kind of thought about it a while. A couple months later, uh, I thought, I got to call this guy. So or find out if he's, he's alive. So I called some, some, some uh, galleries and they said, well, we think he actually lives north of Denver. So I called information. That's when he used to dial one, four, one, one. Yeah. And they said, uh, Williford, Hollis Williford. And they said, yeah, nine, seven, oh, six, six, nine, two, nine, six, seven. Still remember the phone number. So I called him and he invited me to come up uh, that night and I loaded the family up and we headed up. And uh, pitch black, uh, late November night, and uh, pulled in the driveway, wasn't a light on anywhere. Thought this, I don't know if this is the right place, but I walked up to check out. Uh, there's two wagon wheel uh, windows and a door, and I kind of peered up into the, and I saw Welcome Sundown, the big statue in clay form in his studio. And I thought, holy crap, uh, <laughs> this guy's more than an etcher. <laughs> this is this guy's a real deal, but that that was what uh, started our friendship that night. Um, we bought a, a few more etchings from him, and then the next day, I was so inspired by what I had seen, I sat down the next morning and I wrote this letter to him of thank you, and and I uh, it was the best thing I'd ever written in my life. I mean, just just completely inspired moment, and I fired it off, mailed it to him before before email. And two weeks later, I followed up with him and he said, hey, why don't you come up here? I want you to write my book, my biography. So, yeah, I mean, I just that that part of it, you know, we, we see the book here 30 years later, but it actually began with him asking you to write his story. Yeah. Um, and, and he had strong views about how that story should be written. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get, I, you know, you said the word moment and that is so important I think recognizing the moment. I mean, um, even in the artwork of there's something happened, something creates that sense of curiosity that encourage us to ex encourages us to explore and learn more. And so you taking that, that becomes the reciprocal relationship between um, the person, you know, giving the invitation or the artist. It's like, and then you, you share, like you connected and you, that's really important, that relationship. And so, um, the moment is important. And so that's, that's really great. Yeah. I think the, the lesson I think for me is from all that was if you do nothing, nothing 
happens. And um, just the fact that I, you know, 26, 27 years of age, knew something was at play. Mm -hmm. But if I wouldn't have called information and not worried about it, that this central piece of my life would never have happened. And it all comes down to just saying, okay, I'm going to call this to see if I can track down. And I I think that goes back to what Hollis said. You've only got one crack at it, you know? And at the same time, every moment can re every moment of your life, you can redefine the trajectory of your life. Right. It's like, if not you, then who, you know, people face daunting experiences or, um, challenges. And if you're not going to do it, then who will? And so, yeah, it's great. So listen, Eric, this book, I've, I have shelves full of coffee table art books. Okay. And they're, and beautiful imagery. This is really a rare art book in my view. And that uh, it is as interesting to read (laughs) as it is to uh, peruse visually. Uh, A lot of those books are not they're, they are they are academically well done, well documented. They're not very interesting to read. This this is something entirely different because because of your relationship with Hollis, you were able to reflect his character and his personality as well as his phenomenal sculptures, paintings, and drawings. This guy, uh, if you'll excuse the term, this guy was no titsy pretzel, as my mother used to say in a beret and a smock, uh, going humbly through the world. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about Hollis the man, because it, again, across this relationship that you had with him, there were times when you had a little, you had to deal with, with a little bit of conflict and a little, some very strong feelings about how things should go. And, and again, and he was a, he was a, man's man, as you would say. Uh, so I'd talk a little bit about him. Yeah, he was, um, he was uh, at, at one, at, in one, one moment or one day, he'd be the kindest, most gentle, generous human being you'd ever meet. Then there were other times um, when, you know, he, he had his fight with the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum over the future of uh, National Academy of Western mm-hmm. Arts and Preto West. Mm-hmm. He felt like uh, at the time, uh, this is probably the single biggest fight he actually had in his life. Actually, I can list a couple of them here. Um, over the future of, of, of the pre-West uh, and, you know, how how commercially do we, do we focus, do we want to make this would, be, would have been his argument. How, how you know, he, he always felt like, man, I have fought my way to get in here. Why are we going to open this door up to everybody, you know? And he wanted to keep it, he keep it more, um, not as a, I guess an elite, smaller organization of people who kind of paid a blood price and in, in getting into it. You know, I remember, um, you remember the McNeil Lara report on PBS? Sure, sure, yeah. Sure. He, uh, he, he was asked to appear on that show over the future of the National Endowment for the Arts. Do you remember that big fight they had oh back gosh. in the nineties? Yeah. And, and he was, he was very much against, um, uh, government funding of, of the arts. He just didn't like it. He, he thought that it needed to stand on its own merits. And he got on the air and laid it out there. And, and you know, looking back, you kind of kind of cringe a little bit because he was so outspoken. Um, he was tough, um, not necessarily combative, but he, t- he would tell you what he, he was thinking. But he was always good. 
he was always good and he was always fair to people and everybody who knew him loved him. You know, they, they really, really respected him. Um, I remember, you know, there were times he was always, he had diabetes and, you know, his, his, he had heart failure in the middle of, uh, creating welcome sundown oh and, and he nearly died. I think at least once they, he was able to recover. Um, you know, he, he, he was in a, in a way his desire to create was so strong that it also resulted in his own destruction. You know, he, it killed him eventually. He died at 66. That's not an old man, you know? Um, Part of it was, you know, uh, that the technology wasn't there to, uh, for, for di diabetics today, the, you know, to, you know, keep away from those wild swings and blood sugar levels and all kinds of things. And he would get kind of loopy and at, on t at times because he just, he was just so passionate about creating work that he wouldn't remember to take care of himself. Um, he smoked in the eighties, he, he had quit by the time I'd met him, but he just, you know, honestly hadn't really taken very good care of himself in some cases, but he was always creating always, always, always. And, and, you know, he, he just, just, you know, his hands were just going all the time and scraping his pocket knife and scraping his fingers. And, and, uh, and then he'd get the, in these moods where he get really quiet and focused and you say, okay, he's, he's, he's in creative mode. You need to leave him alone. And I, go away. And the next time I come back, there'd be something there that he would have created just, just out of nothing. Um, uh, I think his younger brother, Ronnie, um, who had worked for him for many years, um, re recalls a story. Hollis sat down with his accountant one time and, and they did an evaluation amount of time that he actually spent creating art. And it ended up being less than 16% of his day because there were so many things that were drawing him away from it. And, uh, and I think that that hurt him too. And, and, and really we paid the price for that today because we don't get to see what he would have created if had he had that 84% of that time to be fully creative, you know, but, uh, he, he was a, he was a big outdoorsman. Yeah. And, um, one of the interesting things about your book, um, you know, when I think of his work, I think of things like, uh, we've had at the Cowboy Museum, but he did a lot of work around wildlife, um, and, was really committed to understanding them. He wasn't just working from photographs. I mean, he was in the field a lot um, and studying. And he was a hunter and sportsman and, yeah. Yeah, we had a deer jump through a windshield one time. We were out hunting together and uh, spilled his coffee all over his chest. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, he... <laughs> That's all that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah tear off a rearview mirror and it was awful. But, but, uh, but no, he... he um, the, I think one of the things that, that people really need to understand about his work was how authentic it was and how much research he went into it. I mean, he went back to the original sources. So I, he, you know, he went up to Northwest Territories in Alaska and studied the Athabascans and the Inuits and did say, a, uh, Yeah, his studies of, of various native cultures was extensive. Yeah, it was very, very extensive. It wasn't just, he wasn't just dealing in stereotypes. You know, right. he, he was dealing in... He he he, uh, he had a saying that firsthand uh, firsthand experience is the straightest arrow in your quiver, and so he would always go out and experience what he was eventually going to try to create. And uh, I think he was unique in that way in a lot of respects. You know that he really strove to get out and see things and experience it, and and then felt comfortable in the creation of whatever he was trying to do. 
But his Inuits are, was a, really his last, um, not his last, but his, his really a, a great series. He did a lot of Native American dancers and he loved dance. He was a, a, enjoyed dance himself. Um, he was just transfixed by it. Uh, but you see, uh, you know, as you look at the span of his life's work, kind of the dissipation of energy as well, because toward the end of his career, he did a series of uh, highly commercially successful pieces about fishermen, you know, but yeah. they were all, all, you know, eight inches tall, you know. And uh, so he went from doing 12, 13 foot monuments to these little itty bitty fishermen that sold well, but didn't also require the physical um, strenuous aspects of creation. So, you know, you brought up um, that experience and first person perspective. That really is so important. I mean, in storytelling um, and aspects of healing and learning and the trust. And I think that's also really important in the fact that you wrote the book from that first hand of knowing him and, and being, you know, having that friendship, that relationship with him. And Ronnie, his brother, has also commented that it's probably better that that this was done after Hollis passed away. And there wasn't a day that didn't go by for 20-some years that I wasn't thinking, my man, what would have, could have, should have been with this book. I mean, it ate at me all the time. Um, I just couldn't write it. I just didn't have it in me. Well, and plus, your own career was... You were pretty consumed in yeah. making but, a living too. But I, but I could, I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the, didn't have the key to the lock. And um, uh, boy, did I struggle with it. And then at some point, you just, I, you know, it's just never going to happen. And but then um, around COVID, you know, the world changed a lot, and it became very clear to me during that period how fleeting things actually were. And I thought, man, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. And it was, um, I, I had an audio book that was short form, a short form, a series of essays. Uh, and I thought, man, I'm not capable of a sustained writing effort of 80,000 words. I'm just, I just can't, I don't have that in me. But I can write five or 600 words at a time and just do short essays, impressions, because that's really what a painting is or a, a sculpture. Sure. It's not a, you know, you can say a lot with a little. And I thought, I think I can do that. So I uh, got a rental car and I booked a hotel <laughs> down here in Oklahoma City. And I, th I it was April. I said, okay, I'm going to go do this. And if I, I when I come back, the first round of this will be written. And I, I told that to a bunch of people and I that Nothing like elevating the pressure, yeah. you know. I, I got that call That's from commitment. you. And I uh, honestly, uh, Eric, it, it just lit me up that you were making this commitment to take this project. Uh, it, it was either going to, I believe your words to me is, I'm either going to get this done or I'm it, it's going to die. Yeah. Right. And how daunting that, I mean, that's a tall task to write about someone you respect so much and that means, um, you know, so much to you. And, you know, they say there's only one way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, you know, and um, it's great that you took that journey like one step at a time, just writing, you know, as much as you could and got into the trenches with it, especially during that time of life. Yeah. And there were very few people that I told that 
told about Hollis and my relationship with him for probably 20 years. Chuck was one of them. And, and I would come down once in a while and kind of cry on Chuck's shoulder and tell him about Hollis. And he would say, well, you know, we got a great archives down in the basement, you know, a resource, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have it here. But, but amazingly, once I started to write, it was easy. And I think that was a real lesson in that, again, if you don't, do it. No one else is going to. And uh, so taking that first step, I remember that first morning, I thought, okay, my best mind time is, you know, 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. or something like that. So I'm going to get up every morning at 4 a.m. and I'm just going to write just as fast as I possibly can. Just, just go, just fast you, you can go. And I got up, or the alarm went off. And I, oh, you know, that little voice, like, oh, just stay in bed a little longer, you know, it's, it's cold. Um, but I started, I said, no, get up, Eric, get up and get this going. And I wrote like three essays in four hours, you know, and then I was averaging about 5,000 words a day. Um, it just exploded. Well, like Hollis, you were getting in your zone and that's yeah. when you just need to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just needed a kick in the pants. But but yeah, that and that was a big relief. That was a big, big relief to finally have that down. So, But see, accepting that about yourself or... or that self-knowledge that you write best in essay mm -hmm. size chunks is what makes this book so readable. I mean, I honestly, I, I love just picking it up and opening to any of the sections and finding a thought, an impression, a, a story here that I can consume and, and think about. And again, it's not linear. And I, anyway, I, I think it's what, makes it special. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate, you know, knowing um, where the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum and Preta West has put, you know, Oklahoma on um, the artistic map and artistic integrity. And I really appreciate all of the hardworking commitment that you've had over the years and the support um, from so many people, you know, like you, Eric, and others. And to know that, um, you know, it's really so much about awareness of the artists and the art and so books like this are really important to really understand that, you know, um, have that influence and the inspiration that artists like Hollis provide to, to others. Yeah, and I think also not all of it's pretty. Right. And I think some of the street cred that Hollis has is, is the, the bad parts of his life, you know, um, that he was able to overcome it. Um. And I think not that all of us have the ability to be a painter or a, a sculptor, but we have, I think we all have the, the ability to, to be better than what we are. And I think there's so much value that's left on the table in most, most lives. We didn't maximize the value, you know? And, uh, I mean, you were asking me earlier about, you know, if I'm an artist or whatever, you know, I think, I think for me, the process of book for me personally was that it created um, value in myself that I didn't know was there. Um, and by that, I mean, I know, I, mean, I have a, I have a, I did, I, I published magazines, I've done all that, you know, but now I know how I'd have done it differently. There's value in that, you know. I made a lot of mistakes in, the, in just the pro production processes of this book. Um, that I wouldn't do now. That's value. That's, 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 that's the getting to A to Z more efficiently, you know? And I think that's sometimes that's the intangibles 
other side of going through a process like this, um, that you, you find something in you that, or you create something in yourself that you didn't know was there, you know? So if somebody were to come up to me and say, Hey, I want to want a book like that. I would know how to get there a lot quicker than this one. Well, that's about journey and your growth. Um, as a person and a writer also, you know, I'll just say that uh, just meeting the challenge in and, in and of itself is really meaningful. Like to know that there's, you know, just shaking hands with the challenge is, that's big too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Along those lines, one thing I do want to mention is that <clears throat> this thing doesn't happen without a lot of other people being involved, like conversations with you and, and friends. But I have a very talented team of people. Um, you know, Bart Ashford did the, did the graphic design Crystal Albers was always helping me to find clarity in the editing. I mean, and, and, and it's funny because when I wrote the book, I'm like, I don't care what anybody thinks, blah, 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 blah. But as soon as you start getting closer and closer to the printer, you start going, okay, we better really fact check this thing because this thing's going to be taken seriously. So we had waves of editors and proofreaders and people looking at the book to make sure that it had, you know, some integrity to it, you know, and uh, to the information that was in it. So it, it, it couldn't have been done, couldn't have gotten done without a lot of people's knowledge and wisdom. So I want to do a shout out to them. Sure. Yeah. Plus, I know there were there were people around you, Eric, on your team, as well as, as others in your circle of uh, acquaintances and influencers uh, who were there to, to say, don't be afraid. Um, I, Sherry McGraw's unquestionably one of my dearest mentors as an artist and and who, who really forced me into the position of saying, hey, I'm going to commit my life to this. And uh, while doing a uh, the first major commission that I ever did was of uh, Blessed Stanley Rother, whose uh, shrine is in his honor here in Oklahoma City. And uh, I, was, I was working in Sherry's studio and I started with this very small, modest... Uh, painting of Father Rother that I thought was the limit of my capabilities and I just didn't want to screw it up. And she would come in every day and just say, no, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And so it went from that small modest to actually putting him in the 500-year-old church where he served before he was martyred and including the retablos on the shelf in the back and an elderly woman in the crowd looking up at him. Um, but she would just say constantly, don't be afraid. And we just, we so need this, the whole human experience as you've described here, which I think is so beautiful about going beyond what we think we can do. Uh, it does require some outside intervention uh, at key moments. And uh, I, I, I see that here in your work. Well, and Chuck, you know, following your journey as an artist, and it's just been incredible, you know, um, the work with, you know, Father Rother, but to know that you're constantly seeking like instruction and knowledge and understanding of how to, you know, advance and push different aspects of your artwork together or forward as an artist is, is just really important too. And it's, it's been really inspiring for me and others to see too. I, I should mention that today Chuck was the only artist 
at the Prita West at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum that was walking around with a notepad taking notes. <laughs> Weren't you? <laughs> well, that may be. That, that say something? sort of what I do. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that kind of says I something. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, I, we are, we're here in Oklahoma City right now uh, during the Prita West and uh, recalling Hollis's time of, of conflict, if you will, with with uh, the folks who were running the Prita West at the time. My, my favorite quote in your book is when Hollis says, you know, if making money were our only objective, we ought to be selling paints and brushes <laughs> rather than using them on canvas. <laughs> Yeah, he he would lay it out there. Yeah, you know, uh, listen, uh, you have mentioned you've mentioned uh, Hollis's younger brother Ronnie two or three times, and I, I, I think we would be remiss not to say a word or two about Ronnie, because that was such an interesting story. I mean, twenty years difference in their ages, and so he he grew up laying on the floor under <laughs> Hollis's drawing board, literally. Uh, talk a little, you, you've become very close with Ronnie, I know, and talk a little about him and, and what a phenomenal career he has had as an artist. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie, uh, was born in 1960 when Hollis, Hollis was, was, uh, 20 years old. Um, and, uh, basically Hollis, uh, paid the hospital bill, um, because his father couldn't and became, um, Ronnie's de facto dad said, basically, if I'm, if I'm, paying the hospital bill, the boy is mine. Right. And it, it started just a remarkable um, relationship uh, between them. And as you say, Ronnie, you know, worked at his feet on the floor drawing and any paper that fall on the floor, Ronnie would grab it and draw. But uh, in the mid, uh, fast forward to the mid nineties, um, the world recognized Ronnie's talents as well. And Ronnie went to uh, work at Walt Disney as a, as an animator working on movies like Milan and uh, the hunchback of, of Notre Dame and a few other great, great famous movies that we grew up with. Um, and now Ronnie lives as a uh, fine artist in his own right in, in uh, Florida near uh, Daytona beach, loves Florida, loves going out looking at alligators and painting the swamps. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, one of the really great things about writing this book has been becoming friends with, with Ronnie and, uh, um, I mean, we were friends then, but we're close now, you know, and, uh, we created a little documentary. I shoot, I shoot films and we did a nice little documentary. Which is just beautiful. I, I've watched it repeatedly. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful work of art in its own right. And, and Ronnie in a lot of ways is, is a testament to, um, um, to Hollis's belief in freedom. And Hollis always said that the greatest gift I can give you is, you know, the freedom of choice, you know, to live your life the way you want to. And Ronnie and, and Hollis are very different people. But Hollis never criticized Ronnie for, for being his own person, you know. And uh, he, he encouraged it. And the world could use a lot more of that kind of thinking today. Oh, my. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I really love the title of the book, you know, The Crossing of the Water. I know the art has inspired that. But, um, you know, for Native people, for humans, you know, the waterways, you know, or the crossing was where we connected, we traded, we learned from one another, the exchange. And I think it's really symbolic that you you chose that title. Yeah. And it's been the, the, the title from the beginning. And um, the reason I chose the lily pads um, for the cover 
was because Hollis was always flirting between those crossover points, mm-hmm. um, between the realm above the water and the realm below the water, that liminal space between the two. And so I, I wanted the the cover of the book to give you a sense of something being underneath it. Um, and then the back photo of the book is him painting on an easel um, and he's looking into the book. And, uh, um, but, but he, he was always flirting on that edge between life and death and the crossing points. And, and I think it was uh, Stonewall Jackson, his last words when he died, he said, uh, let us cross over the river and, and rest in the shade of the trees. You know, there's something kind of archetypal about that, about that moving into another realm. And that's what I wanted. That's where I wanted to place the book. A lot of people don't see that immediately, but I'm glad that you saw that because it it is, it was important. His name, Williford is also, you know, the crossing of the river where the willow trees are, you know, and I I just thought it worked. Um, If you pull the dust cover off um, on the cover, the hardcover, there's also one of his etchings called uh, Chippewa Solo. And that was always his favorite etching. And uh, so I, I just thought that the two worked together. They actually, the use of the, of the Lonesome Lily painting was a decision we made well into um, the printing process. I just woke up at 3 a.m. like so many other things <laughs> of this book and just thought, oh my God, you know, we need to put that thing on the cover. So right. we hadn't even, we did not want to do, I had chosen against doing a dust cover and then a month or two into the printing process. I thought, oh, we got to get that on there. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. And, you know, as a Choctaw person, we have stories about crossing a river, you know, river together. And um, we, there are times we couldn't cross a river unless we were holding one another's hands, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's really symbolic thinking about, um, you know, your journey when um, have friends like Chuck and others to support you of holding your hand at the crossing, you know, through the process. It's really great. And their family, like Ronnie, you know. Yeah, and there definitely has been, uh, for me, um, a pre-book and post-life, a post-book aspect of my life, right. you know. There's and definitely- I want you to talk about that a little bit, Eric, because yeah. I, I think that's, um, I, I tell young people all the time, I, students I work with at the University of Nebraska, that um, three things, you have to know yourself, you have to earn and demand, respect, and number three, you have to make choices, make mm-hmm. decisions through the course of your life, and don't simply let others uh, choose your course for you. And boy, this was a case where I mean, you have always chosen your own course, but here was a here was a huge decision, and um, I have just I've just seen the change in you uh, since since this book was published and um, talk about that a little bit. It's so enriching. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's a little bit of uh, a a piece being with uh, in a confused state. (laughs) How's that sound? (laughs) Because I, I don't know what the the next step is. I know that this, this, at least in my life, this monumental undertaking that happened that began three decades ago is now behind me. It's been a great, enjoyable process 
to put this into the hands of people and let them enjoy it. And, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, like, like when one of your drawings or paintings goes up on a wall somewhere, it's, 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 you can't describe it. Um, um, I'm at peace with Hollis. I wasn't, it was like, he was waking me up every night. There wasn't a moment that didn't go by. I wasn't, he wasn't (laughs) rapping on my inside of my skull somewhere, but, um, yeah, I don't know where I, I don't know where this goes. I don't know what, what it means. Um, other than I'm at peace with it. And the people who have the book seem to be at peace with it too, you know? And I think that the process of doing the book has also allowed people like Ronnie and uh, Hollis's wife, uh, Debbie, to find peace with this as well, you know, that that they never really got the send-off, you know? And... He left this remarkable legacy of artwork around the country, but there was no uh, nothing to, to to cohesively bind that, you know. And um, so, a big part of what I've done is to send this out to you know the Texas Interlibrary Loan Program and to his Texas high school and to all the universities that he attended mm-hmm. as part of his, uh, you know, making sure that any barefooted kid that walks into those schools can can find inspiration in his work. That's awesome. You know, peace is freeing. And from what you've shared, you know, he believed in freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. Yep. So where can people buy this book? They can, Thank you for the plug. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have a website set up. It's uh, hollisWilliford.com, just H-O-L-L-I-S-W-I-L-L-I-F-O-R-D.com. And uh, we get the order. We'll ship it out that day and, and uh, hope you enjoy it. It's a beautiful book. I can't wait to read it. And Chuck, where can people learn about your artwork and um, what you're doing? You're doing so many incredible things. And Well, thank you. Yeah, actually, uh, we established a website. I, I work with a group of young entrepreneurs in Lincoln that I, that I just love, and they uh, helped me develop a website that is SchroederFineArt.com. And uh, you can go there and, and see my work. And uh, I'm actually, I have a one-man show at the Robert Henry Museum in Cozad this summer uh, for the month of July. Then we'll have a show at the University of Nebraska in the fall. And uh, next summer, I'm going to be back in uh, Ogallala, Nebraska. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Um, Once again, I'll be there all summer uh, in the Petrified Wooden Art Gallery in Ogallala. So... Uh, anyway, having, we're having a lot of fun with that stuff. So, Miss Gina, I, I do, I, you know, your complex pathway uh, through this life has led you not unexpectedly, from my perspective, into this role. Um, tell me where you're going from here. I don't know. You know, I really identify, Eric, with uh, that sense of, you know, kind of free falling for a minute, you know, after the opening of the First Americans Museum and also the opening of the uh, Choctaw Cultural Center. And, um, you know, I'm an attorney by trade as well. And so my work in mediation is hopefully increasing more and more. And I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to um, for reconciliation. I think that's always uh, going to be a part of my journey uh, culturally. Um, but if I can do that professionally as well, that's important to me. 
So I work with a different tribal consultation, and I'm really blessed to be working with the Sentinez Band of Chumash Indians and opening their museum and cultural center. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's just, it's beautiful, beautiful project, just a, a wonderful, um, just wonderful community of people. And so I feel really blessed. And I just want to say thank you so much for you both being on the show and my dear friend Chuck Schroeder and <laughs> my new friend Eric Grant. And I know that, um, yeah, I can't wait to read. And I'm excited to um, to learn if you will be um, working on any other projects like this in the future. And Chuck, I'm always excited to see what you're doing and learn about what you're doing. And we've talked about a, a book for you too. <laughs> but uh, you always, um, you never cease to amaze me. Thank you so much. Appreciate you both being on the show. You're always challenging me to think beyond where I am. This this is not new, Jean. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to yeah, thanks to both of you. This is this is been a rare treat. Thank you, Gina, for the opportunity. Thank you, Gina. Thank you so much. Yakoki, thank you for joining us. Timber People is brought to you by the Possibilities Podcast Platform.